Brian North and I have had the privilege of serving as the student ministry intern here at Trinity. It's a privilege to be here and to open God's word together with you all, one that I am very grateful for. If you would, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Today we'll be looking at the first 10 verses and hearing from Paul as he explains how God gives his saving grace for believers by grace through faith. This is another one of Paul's very long sentences, which he seems quite fond of in the book. In some ways, this single sentence is a way that he draws his points closer together, brings a close connection between them. In these 10 verses, there are three main parts of our walk with Christ, which he highlights. The first is that, apart from God's grace, we are dead in verses 1 through 3. Initially, the passage feels very hopeless and dark, as Paul is depicting what, God's, or what life apart from God's grace looks like. Here he's very artistically painting a picture of our lives before we knew Christ, before God's grace had effect on us. I think he's intentionally doing this to help us set up for the, the merciful and loving grace of being made alive in Christ which is contained in verses 4 through 7, where God is graciously intervening into our deadness and saves us in Christ Jesus. These verses contain a gospel call for us to new life in Christ and for those already in Christ to call to worship and rejoicing. These verses are very hopeful. The final conclusion of this very long sentence contains a restatement of all of this And that all of this is by God's grace alone. And as a result, produces in us a new life of obedience in Christ. Ultimately, we are finding Paul articulating that we are made alive in Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Read with me verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not to your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to gather together as your people in worship, both in song and through your word. What a gift it is to do so freely. And Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would bring us clarity and conviction, that you'd work in our lives through it. 
And that as we learn more about who you are, that we would be brought to worship you. God, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you were dead. These are the first words which Paul has for us in these verses. Speaking to our state apart from God's grace. We were not hard of hearing towards the gospel. Not just crippled in good works. Not just struggling to keep our heads above the waters of sin. We were spiritually dead. Spiritually lifeless and unmoving. Whatever a dead person can contribute to being made alive is what we contribute to being made spiritually alive. To believe in Christ. Being spiritually dead means to be spiritually dead. At one point in every single one of our lives, every single one of us, we're living in rebellion against God, transgressing His law and sinning against Him. We were His enemies. I think that because Paul opens his declaration in this way, beginning with our deadness apart from God's grace, that we ought to spend some time thinking about it before we see the greatness of God's grace in our lives in order to have a better understanding of how great a salvation it is. And this state of being apart from God's grace can be seen in four main ways. The first is that those who are living apart from God's grace are dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Unable to understand and appreciate things spiritually. Unable to experience spiritual life and can do nothing in and of himself to save him. A person who is spiritually dead cannot respond to spiritual things just like a person who is physically dead cannot respond to a conversation. Those who are dead cannot function in any spiritual sense until God gives him life. Verse 1 tells us that the cause of the spiritual death is our trespasses and sins. And Paul also tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. In biblical terms, the idea of death means separation both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense. That those who are apart from God, they are not sick. They are not just needy. That they are dead. The second characteristic of those living apart from God's grace is that they are disobedient. Disobedience was at the beginning of man's spiritual death. That is, his disobedience to the will of God. We see in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, when talking about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says that for that in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God had commanded Adam and Eve to not eat from that tree. Yet, shortly later, we see them in chapter 3, disobeying God and eating of it. The punishment for disobedience is death spiritual, and physical. All throughout the scripture, we see death following the heels of sin closely. In verse 2 of Ephesians 2, Paul is showing that those apart from God follow the course of this world, follow the prince of the power of the air, that is, the devil. He's showing that there's this sort of blind willingness to follow these things, to partake in the things of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the heart, and the influence of the devil. The only help an unbeliever has, lost in disobedience, is the power of God and God alone. A third characteristic of those living apart from God's grace is they are depraved. The lost sinner, who we all were at one point, lives to please the passions of the flesh, lives to please the desires of the mind. 
his actions are sinful because his desires are sinful. I want to be careful when I say depraved and not muddy the waters too much, but I don't want to just convey the believer is incapable of doing kind things. But rather, he's incapable of doing anything to earn salvation or to meet God's high standards of holiness. Perhaps apart from God, we could be kind to one another and serve one another, but we can do nothing apart from God to be saved and nothing apart from God to please God in any way. The fourth characteristic of those living apart from God's grace is that they are doomed. We were, by nature, children of wrath. By deeds, children of disobedience. John 3.18 tells us that the unsaved person is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. You see, our plight apart from God is grim. The result of our sin is eternal death and suffering. Our rightful and just punishment is condemnation, for we can never live up to the holiness of God on our own. Each one of these characteristics goes to show how hopeless we are from the God of the universe. By birth, we all as human beings possess fleshly desires and thoughts which lead us to sinful actions and desires. Our rebellion against God is a state tied directly to our human condition apart from the gospel. It affects every single one of us without exception, and it affects every single one of us profoundly. Perhaps you, like me, look at these verses and wonder, this doesn't seem very hopeful, doesn't seem very encouraging, and doesn't seem to apply to our lives other than just tell us how hopeless and bad we are apart from God. I think Paul intentionally organizes his sentence in this way, beginning the chapter in such a dark way. He wants us to understand how dark and how hopeless and needy we are in our condition apart from God's grace before bringing us to the light of the good news in the gospel in the following verses, painting us a stark contrast between our old ways and their new life in Christ. But God, this grim and hopeless and plotting announcement of our plight apart from God, dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath by nature, is shattered by these words. But God, not with the, unexpected, or the expected judgment our sin calls for, but with mercy and love beyond all understanding. Up to this point, Paul has kept us in waiting for the, unex, for the anticipation, for the antidote to our hopeless state apart from God's grace. It's at this moment that God bursts into the scene with his rich mercy as he makes us alive in Christ. Which is our second point. That because of God's grace, we, <clears throat> we are made alive. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The motivation for God to burst onto the scene, to reach down and deliver his enemies, not his friends, his enemies, from our hellbound course of life, leaves us in awe of who he is. He did so not out of anything we've done on our own account. No goodness in and of ourselves, but through mercy according to his love. And this is such good news. Not only did God do this incredible thing, but he did so when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
in this verse, Paul repeats the phrase, when you were dead, back from verse 1, but replaces the you with us. His repeating of this phrase is his way of bringing us back to where it ultimately began, stressing who it was and in what condition we were in when God intervened with his saving grace. In a sense, we were the walking dead, physically alive and moving about life, but spiritually dead and apart from God's grace. And it was exactly then which God saved us. Not when we had chosen to believe. Not when we had done anything good enough. Not when we had impressed him. It says, even when you were dead, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We have been made alive in Christ. Because of God's initiative and Christ's work, we are no longer slaves to sin. No longer dead in the trespasses. No longer living in, our, in the passions of the flesh. No longer carrying out the desires of the mind. The key to this salvation is found at the end of the verse where it says, By grace you have been saved. As Paul has been making abundantly clear to us so far, Christ died for us at the time when we were helpless, even dead, sinful enemies. Therefore, Paul is clarifying that it was grace which is behind God's saving action. This grace should be understood as God's favor despite our undeserving lives. God forgives and ascribes righteousness to those who had previously rejected him as ruler and creator, those who were his enemies. Sometimes in our lives we can try to quantify our sin. Somehow God will love us less if we do this or that. Or if we do more or less. Perhaps we look around and see sin someone else has committed and we say, ours are smaller, and try to self-justify ourselves. Sometimes we make ourselves feel worse. Sometimes we make ourselves feel better. But the truth is that we are born sinners, not Christians. From the moment we were born, we were enemies of God, sinning and trespassing like Paul has outlined for us. It wasn't until God intervened in our lives that we became believers. And it was not our righteousness that was counted. God ascribed righteousness to those who would believe on the basis of his son's work on the cross. Paying the ultimate payment of death, which every single sin we have ever committed is deserving of. Therefore, when we stand together as God's people, we stand not above, not below each other, based on our good works or bad deeds, but equal on the basis of Jesus Christ's righteousness graciously ascribed to us. He says, not only were we saved, he says, we raised, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we were saved, we weren't just left on our own. We were united to Christ, exalted with him, and sharing his throne in the heavens. The reason God does this is that for all eternity, he might show believers in Christ Jesus his loving kindness, the wealth of his grace. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This verse concludes Paul's second point as he continues to paint a vivid picture of the grace of God, which stands starkly in contrast to the dark landscape of human sin. 
by giving believers life with Christ. We're raising them with Christ and seating them with Christ in the place of victory. God has demonstrated his overwhelmingly loving, merciful, and gracious nature of his character. This demonstration of his character is not just a thing which occurred as a side effect of his gracious saving work. It was the very reason he did his gracious saving work. He rescued those who are in Christ from the domination of the world, the dominion of the world, the devil and the flesh, so that he might demonstrate forever the overwhelmingly gracious nature of his character. Praise be to God. But we were not just saved and left to do whatever we want with our lives. No. Paul continues in verses 8 through 10 as he shows us that the result of God's grace leads to new obedience, which is our third point. The result of God's grace leads to new obedience. In these verses, Paul is further developing his graciousness of God, showing the graciousness of God, especially in terms of our salvation. And he's doing this by affirming the work of salvation not only belongs to God, or belongs only to God, who grants salvation as an entirely free gift and emphasizes that it's not on the basis of human effort. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The human response of faith to this gift of salvation far from constitutes any boasting from ourselves. We cannot in any way take credit for such a great gift. For if it is by grace we are saved, then there cannot be anything within us that has caused us to be saved. Or grace would cease to be grace. This grace is not just undeserved, as if we were a neutral party which God has chosen to befriend. It's an act of immense favor bestowed upon those who lie under God's just condemnation as transgressors and sinners. What we contribute to salvation is just what a dead person contributes to being made alive. Nothing. In fact, in Paul, in Philippians 1.29, says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Even our believing is granted by God. We, by grace alone, are enabled to believe as a result of God's intervening while we were hopelessly dead with our wills imprisoned by nature in acts which only lead to transgression and sin. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That according to scripture, all human beings revolt against God and therefore are under his just judgment. But even though God stands over and against us in judgment because of our sin, he quite amazingly stands over and against us in love because he's that kind of God. The gospel is the good news of what God, in love, has done in Jesus Christ, especially in Jesus' cross and resurrection, to deal with our sin and to reconcile us with him. Christ bore our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty that we deserved, endured the judgment we deserved, God's wrath from us, and canceled our sin. The brokenness of our lives he restores. The shattered relationships he rebuilds in the context of the church. The new life that we find in Christ is granted out of the sheer grace of God. And we receive it by faith as we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. We confess him as Lord and bow to him joyfully. 
We look forward to the day when he will make all things new. The good news ultimately culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness where neither sin nor any of its effects can survive. And where we enjoy the presence of God forever in the context of the resurrection. And I want to acknowledge, perhaps in a room this size, there might be people who have not put their faith in Christ. Who have not made that decision to repent of sin and confess Jesus as Lord. If that's today, I want to encourage you to accept Christ. To put your faith in him. Trusting him as your savior and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And there's no better time to do so than the present. For we do not know the future. And for those who are in Christ, this declaration of the gospel ought to bring us to worship and rejoice in our creator. Praising God for the work which he has done. Which he has accomplished and initiated in our lives. The work which Christ accomplished on the cross. As he took our rightful place. Bearing the weight, the shame, the guilt of all our sins. And providing a way for us to spend eternity forever with him. Praise God. The good news does not, does not just end there. And we are not just left wandering around in this life waiting for Christ to return aimlessly. No, we are saved to a purpose. Paul says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of the gospel, we are recreated to do the work which God has planned for his people before the beginning of time. With this last verse in the passage, Paul is bringing to a close his declaration of how God's great power in raising his son from the dead and setting him in a position of victory at his right hand works for each of our good. God has rescued all who are in Christ from the desperate plight of sinful rebellion against him and from the devil by uniting us with Christ in new life and positioning us in victory over the forces of enemies of evil, of the evil one. We have been recreated not to walk in transgressions, sins, the course of the world, the evil desires of our minds, but as God has created human beings from the beginning. God has done this in a way that he has demonstrated his lavishly gracious nature of his character. In this verse, Paul's not just stating in an imperative sense that we are to do good works. That comes later. Rather, he's saying that it's a result of our salvation and being made new in Christ, which good works flow. Friends, we do good works, not for God, but because of God. For the result of God's grace leads us to new obedience. Ultimately, what Paul has been trying to get us to understand through these ten verses is that we are made alive in Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. He moves us from the depths of human hopelessness and rebellion and death to the heights of being raised and seated with Christ in the heavens. The way in which he writes this leaves us with one clear conclusion, that we as believers had and have no contribution to offer to our salvation but faith in Christ. This holy divine gift of salvation being accomplished on our behalf is the greatest news which we could ever hear and the greatest news which we could ever experience. Paul knows that the gospel of God's grace in Christ can only be properly understood after first, firstly rightly seeing our need, our hopeless state without Christ. It was not 
after we had even slightly made ourselves better when Christ intervened, that God showed us mercy. We were sinners. We were transgressors. We were engaged in the lust of the will of the prince of the power along with other sons of disobedience. And all of this was by nature. Hence, we were willing objects of divine wrath. We were dead. That was precisely when God intervened. Out of his incredibly gracious nature of mercy and kindness. He came down, lifted us up, out of no work of our own. But on the basis of his righteousness, graciously ascribed to us in his loving kindness. We were made alive together in Christ. And seated in victory along with our Savior. This new life which we live now is a new life of obedience as we walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for us. There's purpose and meaning to our lives. To the lives we live, even when we might have a hard time seeing that. God loved us enough to reach into our condition. To bring us new life and to give our lives meaning and purpose. Sometimes we look at our sin and say, how could God accept me? We have sinned too much, too big, or too far gone. The truth is, every sin we've ever committed and ever will commit is too big for us to save ourselves. But there is no sin. There's not too much sin that Jesus has not overcome. In Christ, every sin we've ever committed and ever will commit and repented of has been forgiven. We are no longer standing dead in our sin, but alive because of Christ's work on the cross. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at how much bad or good we've done and determine our salvation. No, he looks at the righteousness that has been graciously ascribed to us on the basis of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As we move forward from today, our application to this passage is firstly to believe and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To worship God and to praise him for what he has done, for intervening in goodness into our hopeless condition and bringing us to new life. And finally, to walk in the good works which God has prepared for us beforehand. Friends, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind one another of these truths daily. For we are prone to forget and prone to wander. I want to leave us with this quote from Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer. The gospel is so foolish, according to my conscience, so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsing of the gospel. Let's pray. God, as we read in your word, you have brought us from death to life. We praise you for that. We're no longer slaves of the ways of the world and dead in our sins, but been raised in newness of life and victory with Christ. God, as we display the immeasurable of your riches, of your grace in Christ, as we walk through our weeks, God, I pray you would remind us of this good truth, of this good news Convict us of our sin as we seek to walk in the works which you have prepared beforehand for us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.